The idea we had, uh, we've been in business now since 2006, was to try to take jaded third-year law students. I don't know how much you know about law school, but the story goes, you know, the first year we worked them to death, uh, the second year we, no, first year we scared them to death, second year we worked them to death, third year we bore them to death. Uh, and so the idea was to actually try to offer some unique opportunities to people who were in the third year uh, program to try to provide a kind of capstone for their legal education. And by capstone, I mean a way of actually bringing together all the stuff, that there a lot of the stuff that they had learned in their substantive classes, you know, torts, contracts, con law, criminal law, criminal procedure, all that kind of stuff and bring it in a new context where they would actually be doing something different, be learning new skills, but actually drawing on and building upon their first two years of law school in a way that would provide them a kind of look or window into real life experience. And I think we've succeeded really well. What we do is we take a group of between 12 and 16 uh, third year students who have done uh, very well, can write very well, and are very highly motivated, and throw them into the water and watch them learn to swim. Right? No one sinks. Uh, we make sure uh, we've made sure of that. Uh, and what we do is we provide them real cases uh, before the Supreme Court, and the students actually take primary responsibility at every stage of the proceedings, except the last one. I'll explain that in a minute. So as many of you probably know, to get a case heard before the Supreme Court, you typically have to go through two rounds, or two, uh, a beauty pageant and then an argument. The beauty pageant is just to persuade the court to take your case. Every year, uh, about uh, the people ask the court to review about 7,000 cases it typically hears around 70 cases a year. For those of you who are good at arithmetic, that means the success rate in getting your case heard before the Supreme Court, that doesn't mean you win it, just heard, is about 1%. Our rate, the last time I looked, or statistics were run out, was about 30%, which was the second best in the country, and that's second best among all non-governmental law entities, so among all law firms, things like that but excluding things like the Solicitor General's Office, the United States Department of Justice, the government's lawyers, and things like that, they have a higher rate, understandably. So we do pretty well at that first stage. Uh, we get you know, around 30% of, of our cases uh, are the court agrees to hear. And then we go through a whole nother round of writing where we try to persuade the court that now that they decided to take our case, that we should win it, that our position is right on the merit. Now, the students do all the heavy lifting, all the major work at both of those stages. They do all the research. We, of course, help. We supervise. They do all the initial drafting. They do all the revising. They do all the polishing. And at that point, I, you know, I or the other directors will start uh, leaning in, if you will, a little bit more. And uh, after they do all the sort of fine-tuning on it, we send it off to the Supreme Court, and then the Supreme Court sets a date for argument. Unfortunately, the students can't do that. They're not allowed to do that. I'm sure some of them could do it very well, uh, but 
one of the real lawyers uh, has to get up and stand before the court. In fact, the court is so jealous of its prerogatives that it won't even let us mention the names of the students who worked on the case in a footnote or anything like that. Uh, that's viewed as bad form. So the students remain pretty much completely anonymous uh, throughout the process, uh, but they actually learn a lot. And they part of the learning experience is not only representing real clients in real issues that are cutting edge. By definition, almost anything that gets to the Supreme Court is cutting edge. Right? There are probably pretty good arguments on either side of it. And it's a pretty pressing, important area of law. Otherwise, the court wouldn't waste its resources uh, when so many people are asking it to hear so many different cases, focusing on it. And they're going up against some of the best lawyers in the country. Our uh, most common adversary is the Solicitor General's Office, United States Department of Justice. We've beaten them more than they've beaten us. Uh, we've gone up against the dean of the business bar of the Supreme Court. We beat him. It's not as if we win all the time. We do have a very good uh, win-loss record. We've argued 14 cases. We've had results in 12. And if I remember correctly, we've won eight and a half of those and lost three and a half. Half you ask, how does that happen? It's what's known as a classic split decision. There are two issues in the case. We won one, we lost the other. Yeah, go figure. Better than losing them both, I guess. Um, so you know, we've, done, we've done very well, but we provide a, a, this experience where students can go up against people who are not only real lawyers, but are also very far into, typically very far into the business, and very successful uh, at it. So a few years ago, uh, we had to have our team had to have a conference call with the people involved on the other side. So we're sitting in our seminar room. Everyone's on their laptops. We have a speakerphone on. We're sort of talking to people. And they all, all the people we've never seen before introduced themselves over the speakerphone. I don't know. You know, the students are a little bit interested. I don't know what they're doing. And about two minutes later, one student raises her hand and starts passing the computer, the, her laptop, around to all the other people. And it comes to me, and basically what it says is, do you realize that the most junior person we are talking to is a partner at the law firm? Right. So here we have third-year law students going against people who've been in the profession in a very successful way for at least six or seven years, something like that. Uh, so it's great for them. That really expands, it really expands them test them, challenges them, and they learn an awful lot. And it's a whole lot of fun. So let me spend a moment to telling you about the kinds of cases we do. We do a little bit of everything. Get through it. We do criminal cases. We do criminal procedure cases. We do bankruptcy cases. We do arbitration cases. We do labor law cases. Uh, just about everything you can imagine. Let me tell you about a case I worked on uh, and the clinic worked on with me uh, this year. Uh, we had the uh, thrill of arguing the first case this term before the Supreme Court on uh, Monday, October uh, the 2nd. It's a fairly important one, it turns out. It's called Epic Systems Company versus Lewis. Has anyone heard of it, know about the issue? Well, concerns, as you know, uh, from like credit cards and everything else you do these days, uh, everyone, all companies are asking everyone to sign as part of the fine print. Uh, arbitration agreements so that you will agree to uh, 
adjudicate any kind of disputes that you have with the company through arbitration rather than through a standard court case. Uh, the companies defend this as say it's cheaper, quicker, it's better for the consumers. Consumers typically don't really believe that. Uh, but you know, there's an argument about it. But there's this act in the background called the Federal Arbitration Act that says that once you agree to arbitrate, you pretty much have to in the courts enforce that. There's also another law which comes, a series of laws that come from, uh, go all the way back to the New Deal, uh, in particular National Labor Relations Act and North LaGuardia Act, which protect workers' rights to collective action. Right? They say that workers, they can strike, they can do all this other kind of stuff. They don't have to pursue disputes individually with their employer. And it protects concerted activities for mutual benefit and protection. That's the statutory term. Uh, so the question here is whether an employer can actually force, through an arbitration agreement, employees to basically waive their right to pursue collective action. Basically, you signed away, you agree in, these, uh, in the small print of these contracts, typically, uh, not only to arbitrate any dispute with the employer, but to do so individually, not collectively. And also, in many cases, you will do it confidentially, meaning you cannot tell anyone else, your co-employees, about your pursuing arbitration against the employer, what the issue is, what the dispute is, uh, which, of course, uh, hinders any kind of informal aid. If you can't tell your friends at work uh, about it, they can't even you know, give you emotional support, that sort of thing. Uh, so it was, turns out to be a big case. Uh, the, uh, the these are kinds of arbitration agreements cover tens of millions of in people uh, across uh, the country. Uh, the proportion of the workers being cover uh, covered is growing and growing and growing every year as employers see the advantages uh, of this. So the National Labor Relations Board basically said a few years ago, took the position to be an unfair labor practice. Uh, for an employer to force these kinds of agreements on employees because it interfered with their right to seek collective action. And of course, employers are pretty unhappy with that, and they started uh, seeking review of what the National Labor Relations Board was doing. In the Fifth Circuit, they won pretty much a slam dunk. In the Ninth and uh, Seventh Circuits, uh, the employees won. And so there was the law, and the Sixth Circuit turns out the employees won as well. So there were the law was being applied differently in different parts of the country. is a very important thing, affected a lot of people, uh, and also employers had a lot of flexibility about which courts they could challenge uh, the NLRB's rulings in. So what what happened is that typically, uh, any, for any large corporation. Uh, you could, if they have much business at all in the Fifth Circuit, which is covers Texas, uh, Mississippi, and Louisiana, they could go there and ask the court to review an adverse ruling from the National Labor Relations Board. And they typically went, because the um, Fifth Circuit had already said that it agreed that the Arbit Federal Arbitration Act basically trumped the, uh, the National Labor Relations Act. So there's this conflict. We uh, went up to the court. We had the argument. It was thrilling. Uh, the first day, uh, first Monday in October, the students were there uh, watching. Although they weren't allowed to actually argue it, they were involved in preparation for the argument, doing research, but also perhaps more uh, for more fun, 
uh, they mooted me. So they pretended to be justices on the Supreme Court and asked me questions. So you know, someone would be ventriloquizing the notorious uh, RBG. Uh, others would be ventriloquizing uh, Justice Kennedy, you know, that sort of thing. And it was just wonderful to realize after the argument that when someone was at, you know, that when someone had asked me a question uh, in the mooting, and some justice somewhere during the argument had actually asked the same question, the student was just like over the moon. Yeah, as you can imagine, just like you know, hey God, I could be Justice Kennedy, right? <laughs> that kind, that kind of thing. Uh, so we're still waiting for a result. We haven't heard yet. Uh, we, it's one of the more, it's thought to be one of the more contentious uh, cases of the term. Uh, it's now the oldest case that hasn't actually uh, been decided yet, largely because it was the first one argued as a term. Uh, but we, you know, we, uh, the court will almost certainly decide it before the end of June. So, and it will, you know, it will get in the newspapers, I'm sure, however it's decided. Uh, so keep your eyes open uh, for that. But it was a really fun experience. Students enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Uh, and everyone learned a lot. So what can I tell you about the, the clinic? You must have questions. Yes. Two questions. All right. Okay, uh, first thing, how, wh basically what do I think is gonna happen in epic system? Uh, most people think that the deck is stacked against us. Uh, the one very odd thing happened at the oral argument. Uh, you'll remember if you were reading the newspapers uh, last April when Justice Gorsuch came on to uh, the bench uh, that he started with a bang not a whimper, he's asking, you know, asking lots of questions all the time. Some people claimed he was annoying his colleague. Uh, he was writing lots more opinions, dissents, individual uh, uh, concurrences and things like that than any other justice had. In fact, he wrote and I think his, he was on the court for only one sitting, so one month, and he wrote as many individual, not opinions for the court, but individual opinions as Justice Kagan had in her first two years. Uh, so he was really eager to get out of the gates. He was talking, you know, some people said, thought he was talking too much, was a little bit of a loud mouth or whatever. So we went in uh, thinking that, wow, you know, we've got to be prepared for him. And he didn't say a word. I don't know what that means. Uh, he asked a lot, he said a lot in the next argument that came up right after ours, which was a big immigration case. Uh, so who knows how to read that. Uh, I think um, uh, Justice Thomas is very pro-arbitration, so although he didn't say anything, I don't think he needed to for us to tell how he's likely to vote. Uh, the three other conservatives uh, said things which indicated that it's going to be hard for us to get their vote. Uh, the four liberals uh, basically seemed supportive. Uh, and in fact, Justice Breyer at one point said, uh, I don't know if it was to me or to the other uh, guy, one of the people on the other side, said basically, well, if we, you know, if we take that position, doesn't that mean that we're really just throwing the New Deal out the window? Uh, so you know, I just want to stand up and applaud him uh, for pointing that out. Uh, so I think it's probably going to depend just on Justice Gorsuch. And uh, you might say, you know, he's known as a conservative. Conservatives tend to side uh, with the arbitration in these kinds of cases, not uniformly, but pretty much. But again, it's very weird for him not to say anything, so who knows. Uh, the other question was, how do we persuade people to give up the cases? By 
telling them, one, the price is right, we're free. <laughs> Two, persuading them that we can do a really good job. Three, reaching out and offering to work collaboratively with people. We're not really so much interested in taking cases over from people and just sort of doing them ourselves. It's much more fun and beneficial for the students to actually learn by working in some ways with the attorneys below. Uh, so you know, we want to respect every, everything that they have done. We want to include them if they're interested. Some of them aren't. Uh, we want to include them if they're interested in everything we're doing. Um, and but it's basically, though, the price and the expertise that are the selling points. More questions? Yes? Well, we want to take up cases that stand a good chance of going the whole way. Right? And so there are, there are some uh, traditional indicia of that, like a conflict among the lower federal courts of appeals. So the Supreme Court feels rather strongly that uh, federal law should apply the same across the country. You don't want a different federal law for New York than for California, that kind of thing. So circuit conflicts are often very important. Uh, in general, if it's, uh, if it's an issue that concerns a lot of people, a lot of money, uh, that will probably you know, move it up in the court's hierarchy of importance. Uh, but it's very hard. You know, the court it says only has, is only going to hear about 1% of all the cases that people ask it to. So it's going to be very careful about how it allocates its resources. And so you have to basically convince them uh, that for some reason your case is in the top 1%. And that's pretty hard, but, but there are ways, so disuniformity is one way. Uh, the stakes are another, the number of people affected by it. Sometimes it's just the symbolism uh, of it. Uh, so you know, there are some cases that the court has, you know, is eager at certain times to hear, even though on the ground they may not be that important. They're sort of symbolically important you know, kind of thing. Uh, so you sort of work with all that kind of stuff. Yeah. No. You mean, do you mean law firms advising their clients to use arbitration? Or do you mean law firms that using arbitration themselves? themselves? Well, that's a different question. I don't think it will be. Uh, law firms, if they're thinking of using it with their employees, many of their employees, especially the uh, legal, the, real, the lawyers, are pretty legally sophisticated. So that's going to be a different kind of concern. As a matter of fact, I don't know uh, how many law firms now are using this. That's a very interesting uh, question. You can see it going both ways. I mean, one, the, the attorneys, to the extent that they're the ones who are being covered, sort of know what's happening, how it matters, what kind of difference it makes. Uh, on the other hand, the law firms know that, well, this really makes a difference on the ground to how quickly you can make disputes go away, uh, whether someone even bothers bringing a dispute against you, that kind of thing. So no, that's a very interesting empirical question. I don't, ha I don't know, have a clue going forward, and I have not much of a clue right now. Sure. Yes. Of the twelve to sixteen uh, students who participate, what do the majority of them do after they 
majority uh, clerk. Okay, uh, not all, uh, but the great majority uh, of them uh, do. They so say right after law school. Uh, years after that, ones that they're doing different things, uh, fewer teaching, a lot are in practice, uh, some are in politics, you know, in some way or another. Uh, but I don't know that that profile, the sort of, you know, 10 years out profile, differs that much from the general profile of alums. Um, that would be hard, and I'd have to think about that and do some study. Yeah. I'm curious of how many already had federal clerkships, or like clerkships lined up for after 1L, or 3L, um, prior to taking it, or if this clinic helped them get those clerkships? It depends on the judge, and it depends upon when the judges choose clerks. And that has changed over the time of the, the clinic's been in business. Uh, there have been some times when, uh, a few times, when judges weren't actually picking their clerks until after second year grades came in. And, and though they, so they'd be interviewing it typically at the end of the summer, right before the third year started. And in those cases, people in the clinic reported that uh, it really seemed to make a difference. Because they could go, well, one of the things they had to do then, not so much now, but then, was they actually had to read all the cases coming down from the courts of appeals to try to spot cases that might be interesting for the clinic to take over. Uh, and so they would often know what the docket of the circuit was like better than the people who, the current clerks there. And that was impressive for a judge. But also you know the judges, this is just something unusual on their transcript. Nowadays it's a little bit different. So a lot of people have clerkships coming out uh, but especially for the Court of Appeals, a lot of some of those uh, judges want people to be out, get ex some experience elsewhere first. So it's not as if it necessarily makes that much difference now when they're choosing in the second year before students have even been admitted to the clinic. Their first set of clerks or the, cler the clerkships you would have right after you graduate from law school. But when people are later actually s applying for clerkships after that, so not the first, right when they get out of law school, maybe the next year or the year after that, it seems to help a lot. Uh, if nothing else, it sort of takes you, uh, distinguishes you from the rest of the pack. But it's something real interesting. And certainly at the level of a Supreme Court clerkship, it makes a big difference. Yes? Uh, how do you choose the students? What's, what's the application process look like? So students have to apply. Uh, it's unlike any, I think, any other uh, law school class where uh, basically, it's sort of random, you know, people, you, you take, like, the people who apply, and then if there's more people apply than can they, you do it sort of randomly. Uh, but so, we're looking for people who are really smart, really highly motivated, and really good writers. Okay? Now, we're also looking for a certain kind of substance matter diversity, because we've, uh, and also a little bit of substance matter focus. So half the cases we do are either federal criminal law or federal criminal procedure, probably a little over half. And that's true of the docket of the court. Right? And so it would make no sense for us to have a clinic full of people, none of whom had taken federal criminal law or federal criminal procedure, right? That would just be dumb, 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 dumb. On the other hand, it doesn't we don't need everyone to have focused on that kind of stuff. We probably want everyone to have some experience or exposure to it. 
Also, there are other classes like federal courts, civil rights law, which are a little bit like that. But then there are also some areas where every you know, two or three years, the clinic will have a case that's in an area where, honestly, it's possible that if you didn't actually try to prepare yourself for it, you'd have no one who would know anything about the law. So for example, one case I'm working on now, in fact, the court is supposed to decide, will let us know maybe on Monday whether it's going to take it or not, is an ERISA case, which is, the ERISA is this incredibly complicated statute which regulates retirement benefits, healthcare, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, there's a class offered on it in law school. It's not the first one students like to take. So no one had taken ERISA. Now, luckily, I'm just a little, I'm a little here. I'm in a bit of Christmas. I for 20 years ago I taught it, so I know a little bit about it. But I haven't kept up with it uh, really. Uh, but it's a real interesting question. Even more important, the people who are going to be doing the work on the Supreme Court, the clerks there, probably none of them have taken it either. Right. So it really, if we can, it helps to find someone who has have at least one member in the clinic who has experience in sort of oddball federal areas like that, ERISA, bankruptcy, trademark, intellectual property, you know, that kind of stuff that comes up occasionally. Now, there's some areas where we're probably never going to get a case. Intellect, patent is very hard for us to do, just because the stakes are usually so high that these super corporations, which have very deep pockets, uh, are very happy to throw money at lawyers, so they want the most prestigious lawyers in the Supreme Court bar to do it. And the general counsel would never like give a case like that to a clinic, even if it were shown empirically that we could do just as good a job as these other people. Because if we were to lose the case, the general counsel would be criticized for going cheap on it, right? And so, but if you go with you know the leading member of the Supreme Court bar, that's one criticism you're never going to get, no matter how much he or she charges, you know, kind of thing. So one more question, then we have to get you off to your next thing. Yeah. You said you've had 12 cases in 12 years of the clinic's existence. Has that kind of worked out one-to-one -one each year, or have, you been, have there been years where there's been multiple cases? Well, we had 14 cases. We've had 12 that we've got results in first, okay. The uh, one year we had four cases. In fact, we had two of them on the same day. So I was sitting, I argued, uh, I came up first. I was arguing my case, and then Mark Sampson, who's another director, was sitting at the table right behind me and came up. Uh, we just changed places uh, that day. Uh, so it was all UVA all the time uh, <laughs> that day. Uh, other times, especially at the year, I guess this is last year, uh, after the death of Justice Scalia, the court just wasn't taking any cases. Because it's much harder to get the four uh, when you only have eight justices, and it takes four votes of four justices to grant the case. And also, people were uncertain for a time whether the next justice would be a Republican or a Democratic appointee. Right? And so that, I think, made them all risk averse. So they really weren't granting anything at all. So we went for, I think that's the one year, that's the only year where we've not had more than one, uh, we've not had one case. Uh, except for the first year, you know, when we were getting started, we didn't have anything to argue uh, then. Now, we say we have cases, those are the ones we've argued. We've had lots more, like getting in the pipeline. And typically, you know, for us, we have to have three, a little over, you know, three times as many cases as we want to hear in the pipeline, just because the rejection rate is so high. But again, we're in a very good position because our rate is pretty, pretty high. Okay, thank you so much. I hope you'll see. I hope you'll hope you'll seriously consider UVA. 
Uh, I hope you have a great time for the rest of your uh, visit here. And if you have any more questions about the clinic, feel free to give a call or just send me an email. You can find both my phone number and my email address on the webpage. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.